From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, The Portable Expert. This is really a tool for those cases in which you're uncertain. First this. As Seen From Here is committed to medical education devoid of hidden industry bias, Dr. Chang reports no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As Seen From Here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. We owe a great debt to the researchers who gave us the OATS, CGITS, Aegis, and similar studies for providing us with guidance in the form of real quantitative risk analyses for treating glaucoma patients and glaucoma suspects. I found the recommendations of these studies to be a source of security and, frankly, of embarrassment. I hadn't realized how much of the way I managed my glaucoma patients consisted of guesswork. Those of you who regularly listen to these podcasts know my nemesis to be the art of medicine, which is really just a secular equivalent of faith-based healing, with a physician serving as a medical priest. Of course, empiricism has an enormous limitation. As clinicians, we are regularly presented with clinical situations for which no published empirical data exist. At that point, we need to, how to put it generously, interpolate? But if we are to practice the art of medicine, it would at least be nice to consult a group of glaucoma experts to aid us in our non-empirical choices. All right, there's no glaucoma Sanhedrin, but Eric Chang has presented us with the next best thing. I'll let him explain. Eric, welcome to a scene from here. Let's define our terms. What is a glaucoma suspect? Yeah, so this is pretty broad in this study. It's really anyone at elevated risk of glaucoma. It's pretty, um, we didn't um, have a, was it ocular hypertensive, for instance, in the trials. We decided to make it broader than that. So it's not just, not any variable. It's anyone you think who may be at elevated risk, who you may be considering treatment to prevent glaucoma. And we just left it open as that. For those patients who are glaucoma suspects by virtue of elevated intraocular pressure, doesn't the ocular hypertension treatment study tell us whom to treat? Well, they, they do provide information to the clinician. They are based on these two randomized studies, and it gives you um, the five-year probability of developing glaucoma, um, but it doesn't tell you a threshold of treatments. And you could argue that maybe what our project should have done is simply establish what the risk thresholds for treatment are. Um, but we decided, also, we thought that there was a feeling that those risk calculators uh, may not have included all the variables that someone may consider. Um, for instance, someone with a short life expectancy wouldn't be enrolled in those trials, and yet clinicians would see some of these persons and need to make a decision on them, but because they aren't the types of people who are enrolled in those RCTs, um, we're not sure whether studies from 
you know, the results can be generalized from what they found. Now, you mentioned life expectancy. Aside from this and the ocular hypertension treatment study, risk criteria like central corneal thickness, intraocular pressure, cup to disc ratio, what other parameters are considered when deciding whether to treat? Part of this process was to do a systematic review of the literature over what because variables influence the risk of glaucoma. Now, a lot of these are observational studies um, and they're not causative. You know, you can't prove, I guess, in some of these studies, but there are associations. And we found, you know, all sorts of variables. Um, Some are related to ocular measurements, such as cup size. Some are related to something genetic, um, like race or family history. And some are physiologic measures outside the eye, such as blood pressure. Um, so we try to, I guess, assemble as many as we could and then run through this process, I guess I'll describe later, and try to put as many things as possible and yet keep it short enough that a human mind can sort of consider all the variations of these, of these variables. You employed something called the RAND-UCLA appropriateness method. What is that? Yeah, so it, this is a pretty interesting method. It's no, it's not magic or anything. I, I will um, maybe I'll just uh, give a little more detail what it is. You can think of it as a way to elicit opinion from a committee in a less biased fashion. Um, it was developed in the 60s, and its original imp- application was, I think, in the military and in education. And sociologists have examined how decisions are made in a typical committee, and what they found is that there are usually a few persons let's say the most senior in terms of the hierarchy or experience or reputation or something like that, who dominate the discussion. And that's fine if, that's, if they're right, but then why bother convening a whole committee? So if you want to really elicit opinions from a committee, from a group of people, while limiting the ability of one person from dominating, this was kind of developed over the years as a way to better do that. And it's been used in, I guess, the medical literature as a way of trying to combine the medical literature with uh, the scientific evidence with expert opinion. And it probably has four central features. One is that the votes are anonymous, so there's no pressure on knowing, uh, on, on someone uh, knowing that other people know how you vote. Um, second, there's iteration, so there's multiple rounds of ratings, and it gives you a chance to change your mind. The third and probably the most important feature is there's some controlled feedback in which you are able to know how as a group everyone else votes and you know how you vote and you can self-determine whether you're an outlier or not and privately in in the next round of ratings change your mind if you think that, you know, based on how everyone votes that you may reconsider um, how you voted in the prior round. And at the end there's... um, kind of a statistical group response. At the end, everyone gets one vote. So even if one person just discusses it more than others, then they still only get one vote. Usually the first round is done in private, and then there's a face-to-face meeting which people come together, sort of discuss those topics where there's disagreement. And it doesn't force consensus. You can re-vote and find that there's just as much disagreement as before, and that's fine. We just identified an area where there's no agreements and that's that. But what we frequently find is that the reasons for disagreements can sort of be worked out in a discussion. Some people think, oh, I misinterpreted what I'm, what I'm rating or I didn't think about this 
possibility that another person brought up, and you get closer to a consensus with the second round or subsequent rounds. And it seems to, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's probably the best way to really combine expert opinion with the medical with the medical evidence. There have been popular books dealing with the idea of the wisdom of crowds, but doesn't the wisdom of crowds work best when participants act independently, when they don't have contact? Uh, What I'd like to know is if the RAM, if the RAND appropriateness method's goal is to arrive at the best answer or to arrive at the best consensus. I guess it's arrive at the best consensus without forcing consensus. Try to build consensus on areas where there's a possibility of forming consensus. So in areas where there's not consensus, are there legitimate reasons or are there an explanation behind it that can be resolved? And if in doing, in implying this, if you can get at some of those, you are able to sort of reduce the disagreements and then identify those areas where the consensus cannot be resolved. It's just two people think about the same person, look at the same articles, but they come away with a different interpretation. And this, this method won't close the, I guess, the disagreements among that. If that's the source of the disagreements about who to treat, this is not going to get at that. But for those who are not aware of the entire literature, one person says, well, a lot about this article says this, or one person wasn't thinking about a certain uh, wasn't thinking about this, uh, I guess, the thing being rated in the same way. This is a way to recon- to consider, incorporate other people's thoughts and then make a re-rating, usually a slightly different rating because you have now interacted with other people. In what other medical fields has this sort of methodology been employed? Yeah, it's probably started, I think, with coronary artery bypass surgery, then really has been applied mostly to surgical procedures. So most relevant to your audience, this was applied to cataract surgery in, I think, the early 90s. And about a decade later, someone used these rules to determine whether persons who were operative cataract surgery, who the, I guess the 1990s panel thought were appropriate, whether they actually did, had better outcomes than persons who were operated that the 1990s panel thought was inappropriate. And um, so this was, I guess you can say, validated in a way that they were able to show that if you were an appropriate case as defined by this earlier committee, your outcomes were indeed better. A variation of this has been used to generate indicators for all sorts of medical care um, besides surgical procedures. And some of these have appeared in the high-profile journals in New England Journal of Medicine to determine what is the quality of care in the United States um, for, let's say, some common medical conditions. So it has been um, greater, it's greater and greater application, but I guess the, it's started with surgical procedures and, but has, has branched out. Can I get you to describe the design of your study? So we essentially followed the brand appropriateness method, and the first Part of that is to do this systematic review of the literature and then convene, identify, I guess, panelists who would, would be able to rate scenarios. Maybe I'll take a step back. We would, after reviewing the medical literature, identify key variables and then 
I'll just tell you what we what we identified first time, such as you know age, IOP, central corneal thickness. We identified life expectancy. We did also two proxy measures for functional status. We had one for driving and whether the person had the ability to self-administer eye drops. And then for each variable, we uh, suppose age was I think five categories at first, and IOP had like. Um, greater than 30 to, I think, less than 18 or something, so about five more variables. Each variable has had different levels, and we created scenarios that had all permutations of every type of, of every possible um, combination of these variables. Then the panel would, this expert panel that we would convene, would take a look at them, and then would run through the RAND appropriateness method. They would rate the first round in private, then we met in, in person, we described them what the ratings were in the first round and had them try to reach better consensus in those um, scenarios where there was disagreement on the first round. Tell me more about the expert ratings, how they actually worked. So for, for each of these, um, I guess, initial 1,080 rating scenarios at first, each panelist would rate each scenario from a 1 to 9 scale. They would mail those ratings to us in the first round, and then at the face-to-face meeting, they would see each scenario, how they voted, and then they would see how many other panelists would rate that scenario, I guess, based on each of the numbers. So you don't know which specific panelists would do so, but for instance, suppose you rated a scenario as a seven, then you would go at the face-to-face meeting, you would see your own personalized kind of feedback, you saw the scenario that you rated a 7, and then you would see, let's say, a few people rated it a 9, a few people rated it a, a, a 6, if, like when one person rated it a 4. And stuff. So you see the distribution of the group, and then you we would go through, I guess, the, the ones of greater disagreement, and you would have a chance to consider why people made their own decision and give your own justification why you uh, rated it as you did. What were your findings? What were your results from this study? Yeah, so let me just say that at the face-to-face rate, at the face-to-face meeting, the uh, panelists decided to drop a few of our original scenarios and added a few. So all the measures of functional status, such as driving and ability to self-administer eye drops, I think everyone thought was really important, but there were other things that they wanted to add, and we, as they said, at this moment we think we should add those other types of factors in and replace those measures of functional status. So they added this size and family history, and they changed the ranges of some of the variables. So it got to be, I think, a little bit, there were more variables, I think 1,800, or, and it's going to be probably hard to describe it over the phone, but for most of the scenarios, we found that there was consensus for whether um, someone should, whether this expert panel thought someone should be treated or not, they generally fall in the same pattern as the risk calculator. So if you, scenarios where if you take the variables applied to the risk calculator and it was high risk, in general, this panel thought that was most, that it was appropriate to treat. With a few exceptions, we found that in our expert panel that IOP really drove a lot of the ratings more than what IOP, the influence of IOP in the risk calculator. It was high in the risk calculator, but IOP really drove a lot of the ratings here. 
to the point where if the ILP was greater than 30, it almost didn't matter what the other factors were. It seems like it was rated appropriate to treat. And when ILP was low, even when some of the other factors were risk factors, let's say central cornea sickness was also low and should, you know, one could consider that they may develop glaucoma, it was uncommon for persons to rate that as appropriate to treat. Um, and this brought, you know, some interesting discussion among the group, whether IOP is playing maybe too much of a factor in, in uh, influencing people's decision to treat um, or not. But that's, I guess, a later question. But it's, so it really, it, it's, it was similar to what you would expect from a risk calculator, but the, you, you did notice uh, some exceptions. And of course, there are some variables in that we were considering, they're not, they're not even in the risk calculator. So for those, um, this pr provides, I guess, additional information for um, to sort somebody in that you wouldn't um, have otherwise if you just used a risk calculator alone. Did some of your expert panelists exhibit biases? Uh, I'm thinking of your description that panelists who themselves perform a treatment are more likely to feel that such a treatment is appropriate. Yeah, that, that's a really good observation. So the, more, the most extreme example, if we took panelists who are very similar, like in one geographical area and who subspecialize in glaucoma, we tried to diversify geographically, both within the United States and outside the U.S., and then tried to vary subspecialists versus general ophthalmologists, those in academic versus private practice, um, even those who are physicians versus optometrists. We had two optometrists sit on the panel. We might have taken it a bit further and maybe invited, if, uh, if we were to do this over again, maybe consider inviting a general internist or a geriatrician to participate. Some of these panels now have uh, even like a patient participate on it. So we thought for this round, the most traditional t um, type of panel is uh, kind of a multi-specialty uh, multidisciplinary panel, um, but here we decide to, to limit to those who actually see a lot of glaucoma suspects and glaucoma patients. So we try to vary it within that, so MD versus optometrist and such, to try to avoid, I guess, glaucoma subspecialists, a panel of just glaucoma subspecialists. Did you find these biases, or is this something that, given the construction of your study, just would not have surfaced? Yeah, we the only one that we try to look at is whether the two optometrists would be a lot different from the ophthalmologists. But as I said, the consensus is actually pretty high for among for a lot of the scenarios, such that, you know, if there was a bias, I could say everyone was biased and together. <laughs> you described two shorthand models in this paper. Can I get you to describe them here? Yeah, so um so even in I guess the original risk calculator, people realized that you, you wouldn't have always access to a computer program or a, um, a, uh, you know, a calculator to do that. So we decided to get some shorthand calculator, uh, some, some sort of tools, essentially, so that at the bedside, that if you wanted to quickly calculate something, this is uh, a way to do so without going through looking things up matches pretty well. It's not 100%, but it's really based on the statistical distribution of scenarios that were rated appropriate. We tried to then deconstruct all the scenarios and say, okay, 
among all the people who were aged less than 55, how many were considered appropriate by this? Could, could we determine the impact of each of these variables on whether something was rated appropriately and try to give each of these variables sort of a score uh, separate by itself so that you can then apply, I guess, each of these variables to a particular patient, just add up points, I guess, attributed to each of these individual factors and come up with a, an actual score at the end. Do you plan to perform an outcomes analysis? That's to say, you, you have this synthesis of expert opinions, but do we know whether they're actually predictive? So, so we don't know that, and that's, that is the next step. It's probably going to take a lot of work. Basically, what you need to do is to take a population where you f- can follow persons over time, you know, whether treated or not, and group everyone at baseline into the scenarios of the page and determine at the end of a fixed period uh, whether people are doing better and then whether they were treated or not. And then you can uh, sort of uh, determine whether how predictive uh, what, for a scenario that was rate appropriate, uh, whether they do have better health later on. It's uh, a big undertaking, but just like the cataract surgery, um, project. It was, you know, done once, reported, and eventually someone with the, the time, the funding, and the population to, to study this question uh, was able to actually perform it. Um, and I think uh, as people in the field, I guess, read this article and consider its implications, I, I hope uh, somebody does follow up on that. Some of the parameters you used were qualitative, like, for example, the cups were described as being small, medium, or large. These are open to significant mm-hmm. interpretation. Right. Um, so this is one of the uh, variables that was decided at the face-to-face meeting that um, we, we needed to have this size in there. I guess it, it, we need, you couldn't interpret um, cup-to-disc ratio without knowing uh, appropriately without knowing something about what the disk size was. Um, but they couldn't settle on definitions over what constitutes a large or small disk, and they didn't know whether a, a treating clinician would actually uh, know uh, to the exact, I guess, measurement of what the size of a disk was. And so they thought for practical reasons, uh, large, medium, small is is probably sufficient. Given these findings and the fact that I'm in clinical practice, how do I incorporate this into my own practice? Yeah, so probably the best way to think about the tools listed here is probably the same way that you think of guidelines. So for persons in which you are sure that you know what to do, um, you just go ahead and treat it as you always would, because you and your practice are going to consider factors that are beyond the calculator and beyond this. So you'll um, factors such as patient compliance, such as you know ease of medications. Um, you you do incorporate that in your decisions, and yet that's beyond that. So if you're sure if you, that you know what uh, whether to treat or not, go ahead and do so. This is really a tool for those cases in which you're uncertain. And in, in cases like that, you either have to rely on, you know, an opinion of a colleague or something in the medical literature, 
or a guideline. And this is just an additional tool that um, if you are uncertain whether clinically, whether to treat someone or not, this is a summary of an expert opinion of persons in the field um, stating whether this committee would have treated the patient or not. And you can use that however you may feel like to um, help guide, uh, to help advise you on what to do. Eric Cheng, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Eric Cheng is assistant professor at the UCLA Department of Neurology and the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System in Los Angeles, California. His paper, For Which Glaucoma Suspects Is It Appropriate to Initiate Treatment?, appears in the April 2009 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Chang or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. A Scene From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.